Amen. Well, before you take a seat, look at the person next to you and say good singing and introduce yourself to them. And then you can take a seat. You can take a seat. When I say the words preaching, evangelism, or witnessing, what images come to mind? What do you think of? Who do you think of? Do you think of people knocking on doors with Bibles? Or preaching on the street with signs saying, turn or burn? Do you think of summer camps where there's a sermon about the cross and an altar call for people to come forward and follow Jesus? I'm sure a few things come to your mind when you think of evangelism. Maybe you think fondly about opportunities you've had to lead friends or family members to Jesus. Or less fondly, you think of times when you've been forced to talk to strangers about him. Evangelism is a big topic, and it includes many of these activities that I've mentioned, but it's not limited to them. And it can be done anywhere, at any time, by any believer. When I talk about evangelism, I mean speaking God's word in order to persuade people to repent and believe in Jesus as the risen Lord who loved and died to save sinners from God's wrath. Now, that's not an exhaustive definition but I think it summarizes much of what the Bible teaches on evangelism. And yet, it also lacks a lot. Here's what I mean. The definition I just gave you only touches on what we do in evangelism. But if you know your Bible, you know that it's not only us who are working when we tell people about Jesus. The Bible gives us a whole other side to evangelism telling us not only what humans do, but also what God does through humans when they preach. When it comes to witnessing, preaching, and evangelism, it's not a one-sided activity. God is actively working to save people through human preachers. There's a human side and the divine side. Today I'm starting a new series on both these sides of evangelism. In this series, we'll see that God is the seeker who finds sinners through his word when we, the church, preach Christ. We're going to dig into 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 in the next two weeks to plumb some of the deep things of God, exploring some of the marvelous and mysterious ways God works through human preachers to bring us believers to Jesus. I want to show you that while evangelism may be straightforward, it's not shallow. We'll see not only how the Corinthians received the gospel through Paul's preaching, we'll also take a look behind the curtain, as it were, and peek into some of the marvelous ways the Holy Spirit revealed himself to them so they'd believe in Christ. 
in salvation through preaching, God is powerfully, invisibly working behind the scenes to open people's hearts to believe in Jesus. We'll see how God worked to make them Christians from the human and the divine side. And what can be said of the believers in Corinth can also be said of every one of us believers here today in Ottawa. If you've come to believe that Jesus is Lord, your story is that God revealed himself to you through a human instrument who spoke of Christ to you. I pray each of us can make this series personal because the same spirit who worked in the Corinthians to believe then was and is at work in us who believe now. The same spirit who revealed himself through human preachers then is still revealing himself through human preachers now. And the same spirit who empowered Paul to preach in that city is still empowering us, the church, to preach in this city now. Over the next three weeks, my plan is to take a look at a few passages that tell us about the dynamics of preaching from both the human and the divine side, as I said. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. But in order to get a context to those texts, I thought I'd start by taking you to Acts chapter 18, which is the context of that letter. It's Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth, and it's captured in Acts 18, 1 through 17. So please turn with me, and as you do, let me remind you of, a, of, a, of an important theme and what's going on in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story, the history of the early church. It shows us how God worked through his people to bring the gospel from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. The key verse in this book is Acts 1.8, where Jesus called his apostles to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And he says to do this task, he would empower them with the Holy Spirit. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And let me remind you that the church today has the same calling and the same spirit. We, the church, are a people who believe and preach Christ. In this series, I'm going to use the terms witnessing, evangelism, and preaching in interchangeable ways. Scripture calls every believer to evangelize, to speak the evangel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's the shared responsibility of the church to preach Christ. So this series is called We Preach Christ from the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. And I think as a church and as Christian individuals, we would do well to learn and to follow Paul's example of preaching. We are a people called and empowered by God to preach Christ wherever we are. So witnessing is not a spectator sport for Christians nor is it just reserved for the evangelists and extroverts in the church. No, Jesus called us not only to follow him, but to be fishers of men. It's not like the church has a few preachers in it. The way I read scripture, especially the New Testament, it appears to me that the church is to be a community of preachers, a company of witnesses, a team of evangelists, if you will. Now, I must confess, talking about preaching gets me excited. I'm a preacher, and I don't just mean from the pulpit, though that excites me too. Uh, I get very excited, and you might think I'm weird, but I get very excited when preaching goes outside of the church. 
Or should I say when the church leaves the building to preach Christ? That excites me. I love hearing how you're taking the gospel to your friends. Many of you have told me about how you've been able to share the gospel with your friends, your roommates, your classmates. And I love hearing how the gospel not only came to you, but also how you're bringing it to others. And it's rippling out. I have all you Christians in mind as we go through this series and as I refer to preaching. Because each of us believers has the privilege to preach Christ to those around us, whether it's behind a pulpit, at a bus stop, or around the dinner table. Now with this in mind, we go to Acts chapter 18, which shows us how Paul witnessed to people in the city of Corinth and how God empowered and worked through him to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. And from this passage, we're going to see today that God empowers and calls us believers to preach Christ wherever we go. God empowers and calls us believers to preach Christ wherever we go. This in mind, let's pray. Our Father, we want to come to you now asking that your spirit would open our eyes to see what's in your word and also that we would have a sensitivity to your word Whether or not we're in Christ, we would consider the responsibility we have to tell others. And if we haven't yet come to Jesus, I do pray that you'd use this preaching to bring people to yourself, to reveal yourself to them. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see in this passage today is that God empowers and calls us believers to preach Christ without discrimination. God empowers and calls us believers to preach Christ without discrimination. Look at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. This chapter is at the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey through the Greco-Roman world. It probably takes place around the years 49 or 50 AD. Paul moves from Athens, which was the intellectual center, the intellectual hub of the first century to Corinth, which apparently was the commercial center of the first century. Now, what was Corinth like? Well, Corinth was the largest city in Greece, and it had a reputation for being not only the commercial center of the first century, but also for being a city full of arrogant and immoral people. The people were proud, proud of themselves, proud of their city. They boasted of its wealth. Its culture, the fact that it was rebuilt in 46 BC by Julius Caesar. It even hosted the world-famous Isthmian Games every two years, like the Olympics. People who lived in Corinth were proud of their city. People would come to Corinth from all over the world. And they would trade and sell and buy goods there. So Corinth was hustling and bustling. But Corinth had a dark side, too. Behind the city was a castle on top of a mountain called the Acrocorinth. There stood the temple of Venus, the goddess of love. And apparently at night, hundreds of female prostitutes served the temple, roaming around the city, looking to indulge in immorality. It was like the red-light district of its day. Corinth was the sin city of its day. There was even a common phrase saying, to live like a Corinthian meant to live like a prostitute. This may be why Paul told this church that he came preaching with fear and trembling, knowing the spiritual climate that he was coming into. And yet, as we see, God was to create a new people for himself in that sin city of Corinth. 
And he would do this through Paul's preaching. That's the setting of our passage. Now look at verse 2. <coughs> and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So upon arriving in Corinth, Paul meets a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. God is leading the way for Paul to carry the gospel to Corinth, and he's even providing a team for them. Now, Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth because they were expelled from Rome for being Jewish. The edict of Claudius likely refers to a decree that came in 49 AD. Apparently, Jews were expelled from Rome because there were civil disputes happening between the Jews and the Corinthians, sorry, the, uh, the Christians over the identity of Jesus. Well, even though they had to relocate to Corinth as a couple, God seems to be orchestrating a friendship and a partnership between Paul and this couple. They turn out to be key ministry partners for Paul in the days to come. Now, we're not sure if at this point they were believers, but they do indeed become believers and even highly esteemed ministry partners of Paul and of many of the churches in that area. As you read on in this chapter, uh, you see that they actually mentor Apollos. Paul says elsewhere that they had a church meeting in their home, and in Romans 16, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risks their who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. <coughs> so Paul stays with them because they worked in the same trade. They were tent makers or leather workers. And now that Paul has a place to stay with Aquila and Priscilla, he's got a team assembled with them. He looks for a place to go and preach. And what does Paul's ministry look like in Corinth? Look at verses 4 and 5. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul's pattern, as you see time and time again in Acts, is to bring the gospel first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So to preach first to the Jew, he goes to the synagogue where a whole bunch of Jewish people would be. And what does he do there? He reasons, persuades, and testifies from the word, from the scriptures, that the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, was Jesus of Nazareth. His ministry partners, Saul, uh, sorry, Silas and Timothy, came over from Macedonia, likely bringing an offering to help support him financially so he didn't need to, uh, to go back and make tents. He could be occupied and preoccupied with the word, able to devote himself to the preaching and to prayer. He would make tents as a plan B, but his main energies would be put towards preaching Christ. Now, in this section of Acts, we don't get a sermon by Paul, but in other parts of the book of Acts, we do. Wherever he went and whoever was in front of him, whether in the synagogues or in the streets, Paul's message was constantly pointing people to Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who died and rose again for our sins according to the Scriptures. The risen Christ who suffered and saved us from our sins was always the topic of Paul's preaching. Now at this time in history, in Acts 18, 
Paul didn't have a New Testament to go to like we do. In fact, uh, it, uh, it, it appears that he was actually writing some of the New Testament when he was in Corinth. He was actually writing the first letter to the Thessalonians. But since the New Testament wasn't available, his preaching would be based on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. That's the word he'd be testifying about, from G, uh, about Jesus from. So if you're curious to find out how he might have preached in the synagogue, take a look at Acts chapter 13 later on. That's one of his sermons in the synagogue. And in that sermon, he pointed to Jesus from Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 55, and Habakkuk 1.5. In that sermon referring to Jesus, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he preached Christ from the scriptures, emphasizing his saving grace. And when he did, God worked mightily, invisibly, and personally through him. And people reacted and responded in different ways. But we shouldn't miss that Paul went to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. As we saw in Acts, his mission, as we see in Acts, his mission wasn't limited to a place or people. He was open-handed with the gospel because God is open-hearted with the gospel. He calls people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to come to Jesus. Everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus for salvation will be saved. So, let me ask you, have you been persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of all? Have you come to saving faith in Him? Have you come to Him as your Savior, as your Lord? If so... Are you still offering him to others without discrimination? Don't play favorites with the gospel. Offer it to all without discrimination or favoritism. And watch what God does. Next we'll see how God empowers and calls believers to preach Christ, expecting him to work through his word. Now look at verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In Corinth, Jesus was by and large rejected by the Jewish people. When Paul was offering him, by and large, they rejected him. Though not all rejected Christ in that city, as we've already seen, Aquila and Priscilla were Jewish, and they became believers. But these verses mark a turning point in Paul's ministry in this city. He often spends the majority of his time with audiences and people who respond in faith. But what he faces out, when he faces outright hostility, he recognizes that he needs to move on. He has a common sense about him that says, uh, it's kind of hard to preach to people when they're trying to oppose and kill you. So he moves along. At times like these, he turns from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. But that doesn't mean he overlooked preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. Not of his day. He actually continues to do so 
first to the Jew, then to the Gentile in his missionary work. As you will see if you read Acts chapter 19, he goes to another city, the city of Ephesus, and he does the same thing, goes to the synagogue first to preach to the Jews first. Now, this gives me pause. I think about mission organizations and the church today, and I think we need to remember this pattern and emphasis from the New Testament. I love hearing about the efforts of people to reach the unreached for Christ. I love to hear how people who had never heard of Jesus are coming to faith in Christ. And how people at the ends of the earth are calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. But we must not forget the Jewish people. The gospel that came to the ends of the earth started in Jerusalem. Paul's pattern for preaching in the New Testament was to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. Remember Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Especially in this tender time of war, I have been encouraged by some of you to actually reach out to my Jewish neighbors. And I've had the opportunity to talk to a rabbi in my neighborhood about many things, including Jesus the Messiah, expressing Simple human sympathy went a long way, and I was able to actually tell him about the Lord and to listen to him. Because what is true of the Gentile is also true of the Jew. They will only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So, church, let's not forget to bring the gospel to our Jewish neighbors and our Gentile neighbors. Now, the opposition that Paul gets leads him to shake out his clothes and say to the people in the synagogue, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. Which is a major statement renouncing any further responsibility for them. It recalls Ezekiel 33 where he's talking about the watchman's responsibility to warn people of the danger of a sword. And the the warning would come through a trumpet blast. The point is, once you make the warning of danger through the trumpet, you have played your part. The watchman was given an opportunity for people to be saved from the coming danger, but if people failed to listen to the warning, that was on them. Their blood was on their own heads. They are culpable. If they had taken this warning seriously, they'd be saved. This background gives us a powerful reminder of another angle on evangelism, doesn't it? Telling people about Jesus is not only telling them good news, though it is that, it is also telling them bad news. We're sounding a trumpet that God's judgment is coming for everyone because of their sin and unbelief. His anger is kindled against people who reject him, and Jesus is the only way to escape the sword of his wrath. Now let's make it personal. We in the church, like the people in the synagogue, are responsible to believe what we hear about Jesus. We shouldn't think of evangelism only for the people out there. We also need to think of the people in here. We need to think about in-reach and outreach. So in this sober moment, let's ask ourselves, how am I responding to Jesus right now? What have I done with Jesus? Am I opposing him or receiving him? Have I come to him for salvation, or am I looking for another way? As for Paul at this moment in Corinth, he sounded the trumpet, 
Now he's turning his focus on the Gentiles outside of the synagogue, outside of the Jewish community, and the Lord was adding to the church as he preached and people believed. Look at verses 7 through 8. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. He goes from a public setting in a synagogue to a more private setting in a house. To Titius Justus' house, who lived right next door to the synagogue. He was a man who worshipped God, which usually refers to a god fear meaning a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel and was connected to the synagogue. Not much is known about this man other than the fact that he provided a house for the Apostle Paul to preach at. He provided hospitality for the ministry. In verse 8, we see the response of many Corinthians who heard the gospel through Paul. See it there? And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. That's the pattern. That's the order. Faith in Christ, then baptism. A man named Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, and he and his whole household believed in the Lord. This was the work of the Spirit, and we'll see more of this next week. But what is worth mentioning again is that these are people from Corinth, people. They're Corinthians. Remember what this means? To live like a Corinthian meant to live like a prostitute. They come from despicable, dirty, dark, immoral backgrounds. And it is to them that the Spirit of God welcomes. And it is to them that the Spirit of God opens their heart to believe the gospel. Salvation comes to them. God makes them new creations. Many of the Corinthian Christians had a shady past of immorality and wickedness. And still... God called them out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Now in Christ, those Corinthians, as Paul said, were washed, were sanctified, and were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And many of you, Calvary Christians, have come to Christ, but you've got a shady past. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God too. Praise the Lord. Our past is part of our story, but it's not the whole story. Nor does it define us or determine our future. God intervened. When he reveals himself, we believe, we're baptized, we're new creations through faith in Christ. One of my favorite parts of my job is doing baptism interviews. And as you've heard some of the recent baptisms, everyone's story is unique and yet similar. God used people to preach the gospel so that the person being baptized was saved. God uses different means and media to bring people to Christ. Sometimes it's through social media, the radio, Sunday school, a song, a parent, Christian camps, church services, a friend, etc., etc., Well, the stories have some uniqueness to them. What remains is that when someone comes to Christ, it's because God revealed himself to them. And when they heard the gospel, they believed. 
And when we hear their story in baptism, we rejoice because we're reminded that God is always working. God is still working to reveal himself to people through the gospel when they believe. He worked in unique ways for them to come to Jesus, and we relate to it because he has worked in unique ways to bring us to Jesus. So what about you? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus? Have you been baptized? If you'd like to know more about this, register on our website, and I'll interview you. Now, Paul has seen both a positive and negative response to his preaching in the city of Corinth. And he tells this church that when he came to Corinth, he was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It seems that his ministry in Corinth was spiritually trying. If you've ever read those letters, you know this was a church with big problems, big troubles, big troublemakers. Paul worked there in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And I'm not sure if that has to do with the spiritual climate, the sexual immorality of the city, or the culture, but the work in Corinth caused him anxiety. And so the Lord gives an anxious and fearful Paul a special encouragement in a vision one night, in a vulnerable moment. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Here's a common encouragement from the Lord to his troubled people, to his fearful people. I am with you. I am with you. Paul was fearful. The Lord himself tells Paul, I am with you. And he encourages him, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. And the Lord also gives a special encouragement about his divine protection. He would not be harmed or hindered in his work in the city of Corinth. Though people were plotting against him, Paul is being protected by God. Why? Because Paul is a chosen instrument in the Redeemer's hand to bring the name of Christ into the sin city of Corinth. He says, I have many in this city who are my people. He was called to go on speaking and to not be silent. He was empowered for this task by the presence of God himself. And he was assured that his preaching would continue to have an effect and an impact on the people of this city because the Lord himself said, I have many in this city who are my people. The fact that God had called and chosen people from this dark city from eternity past to believe in Christ in time motivated Paul to go on speaking the gospel. In fact, he stayed preaching there, teaching the word of God for a year and a half, it says. What was said of the Gentiles in Acts 13 could probably have been said of of the Corinthians as well. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They believed through hearing the gospel preached. God's sovereign choice of people isn't meant to justify silence in evangelism. We don't sit back and say, oh, God will do it. God works through means, and he means to work through our preaching of the gospel. That's how he goes. That's how he finds. That's how he seeks and saves the lost through the church speaking of Christ. The fact that God saves those that he chose through preaching is our confidence that people will actually believe what we say to them about Jesus. 
Paul made great advances with the gospel in Corinth and in many cities. But with spiritual advances, there's always a spiritual counterattack from the devil. But before we get to that, church, I just want to encourage you. I believe what was said of Corinth can be said of Ottawa. Don't be afraid, church. Go on speaking. And do not be silent. Because the Lord has many, even here in this city, who are his people. He is with you as you go. Don't be afraid. So go on speaking. And actually expect that he will work. You may get to lead someone to Christ very soon. God will use your preaching. Don't be silent. Keep preaching, brother and sister. Keep preaching Christ. Go on, preachers. Preach. And some of you who know me know that I've had the privilege recently of leading my mom to Christ on her deathbed. That was last April. She's gone now. She's with the Lord. It was surprising how it happened, but the Lord worked. God is still working now. Keep preaching. Though Paul is protected by the Lord and assured of that protection, we see that there's danger up ahead. And we see this in verses 12 through 17. God empowers and calls believers to preach Christ expecting counterstrikes and his guidance. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So now Paul is being brought before a tribunal for a judgment. They were charging him of persuading people contrary to the law of God. To, to worship God contrary to the law. And even before Paul would defend himself against these charges, Gallio, who was a proconsul or a governor, speaks in his defense. In this case, his words show that he doesn't get involved in the Jewish unbelievers' attack on Paul about the law, but he sends them away. Look at verses 14 to 16. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So if Paul were a, a lawbreaker and a criminal, I'd have something to say. But because it's about your law, I'm leaving it to you. Get out of my face. <laughs> Just to make sure you're awake. Uh, this ruling of Gallio uh, gives the Christians in Corinth legal freedom to, speech, uh, to speak the word of Christ, the exact opposite of what these accusers wanted originally. But as is typical of an angry mob, they usually end up taking their anger out on someone. So instead of harming Paul, they take out their frustrations on a man named Sosthenes, who was the ruler of the synagogue. Look at verse 17. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. We heard earlier that Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, and now we're told that Sosthenes is. Which one is it? This likely meant that both of these men had an office, an official office within the synagogue. 
They had a shared ministry in the synagogue, much like many churches have more than one pastor pastoring the church. But notice that the Lord's words to Paul in the vision are coming true here. Paul is being protected from harm, and God is using Galileo to protect him from being beaten, which provides the occasion for Paul to continue preaching the word in Corinth. And Luke doesn't tell us much about this Sosthenes. He may be a Jewish man or a believer or someone who just sympathizes with Christians. Either way, the crowd beats him down, and it is possible that this is the man that Paul refers to later when he writes 1 Corinthians to this church. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. If this is the case, and I like to think that it is, that Sosthenes came to Christ later, Sosthenes is an example of the many people that the Lord had in that city who would believe in Jesus through Paul's preaching. What a note to end on. This is how the gospel came to the city of Corinth. This is how Paul preached and planted a church in that city. This is the human side of evangelism. And if you want to hear about the divine side of evangelism, the invisible dynamics that are at work in this church through the preaching, join us next week as we look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31, where Paul explains how God worked through the word of the cross in Corinth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are truly humbled that you have called us to your Son, and you have also empowered us and called us to go and tell of Jesus, tell of his saving grace, tell of his perfect work, his finished work on the cross, his resurrection. And Lord, I pray that as we muse on these things in this series and as we consider these things and go home, we would ah, sense the burden that we have to those around us and we would speak up. We go on speaking. We would not be afraid, but we keep telling people about Jesus in the many ways that we can. In Jesus' name, amen.